0: I need to do a, a quick poll. How many of you are left-handed? How many of you are left-handed? Look around at your at your kin, at your kindred spirits. Look at your lefties. Okay, now hands down. How many of you, how many of you switched to become a lefty? Anybody? Was anybody a righty and then? Ha- are you serious? Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. From a righty, what? You were forced? Oh wow. For athletic reasons? No. <laughs> Uh, I was doing some research on uh, what we're going to talk about today from the book of Judges and um, started looking up who are some famous left-handed people. Did you know that eight of our 45 presidents have been left-handed? Eight of them, that's a pretty high percentage. Uh, Benjamin Franklin reportedly was a lefty. And check out this uh, list of minor people. Alexander the Great, Charlemagne, Julius Caesar, Helen Keller, I don't know if this is true, but Dodger fans... Vin Scully? Does anybody know that? Is that true? I, I found that. Bart Simpson? Anyone left-handed? Yeah? Okay. Uh, Judy Garland? Uh, of course, Paul McCartney. Um, Michelangelo? The artist, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Although I didn't check. He could be left-handed. But I remember him being ambidextrous, so that's a little bit of difference. Uh, Tom Cruise? This is on the list. Kermit the Frog... And I wanted to ask the animated version or the puppet. I didn't know which one is is left-handed. The Muppet. Sorry, that was actually incorrect, huh? Uh, Sandy Koufax, of course. Another uh, for you Dodger fans. Tina Fey. Check this out. Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Huh. Something going on here. Uh, And then the the most important one I found is that Justin Bieber is left-handed. So that was, I know, a lot of junior high girls are going to switch to left-hand now. So you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, today we're going to talk about a lefty in the Bible. We're going to talk about a left-handed man and what um, what God did with this unlikely and unusual a person. I'm sure it had nothing to do with his being left-handed. That was unusual, of course. Um, but he lived more than 3,000 years ago, and we find his story in Judges chapter 3. So if you'll turn in your Bibles or access in your app Judges chapter 3, Um, we are going to be looking at verses 12 through 30. So Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. And as you're turning there, would you please stand uh, as a way to honor the reading of God's word? Judges 3, we'll start in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil, in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said... I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, "'Follow after me, for Yahweh has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand.' So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped." So Moab was, re- was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. Father, no doubt some are wondering why in the world this is in the Bible, and why in the world we're talking about it today. So Lord, I pray that you would make it clear that your Holy Spirit would um, help me as I uh, speak. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help these as they listen. Lord, that we would find... Um, Encouragement for our souls, that we would find warning for our souls. Lord, we know that um, all scripture is profitable. So this morning we want to profit. We are uh, greedy for learning, for profiting from this scripture. So open our eyes. Um, Some are tired this morning. Help them to be awake. Lord, awaken us to your word that we might uh, not just sit in our seats and ponder this alone, but that this might generate discussion over lunch and that we might be. Renewed in our desire to search the scriptures, to know you better, and to be known by you. Lord, bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Did you know that one was in the Bible? <laughs> I knew that one was in the Bible because when I was a little kid, um, I used to be a nerd. <laughs> I used to be. Uh, and um, I liked to read my Bible. And I especially liked when there were violent, gory things in it, because I'm a boy. And this uh, was a story that uh, I remember reading in uh, the Bible storybooks and thought that it did not get its due as far as pictures went. Um, I was hoping for more. Um, But as I grew older, I was really fascinated by the book of Judges because it's, it's a really interesting book. If you have not read it recently or ever, you should take some time this week um, warning, it goes from, as one commentator said, PG in the first few chapters, PG 13, and by the end it's rated R. Um, it, it's a very interesting book. It's, it's interesting to consider why did God include these things in the scriptures. Um, if you have a, a view of the Bible as a bunch of um, friendly, ki- kid-friendly stories, um, you've not read enough um, because this is actually um, par for the course in much of God's word. We need to get beyond, though, a fascination with swords going into fat man's bellies and look beyond merely um, the story and see why God has included this in his holy word. The book of Judges is a literary masterpiece. Um, As I looked this week, even learning more and more about how uh, the author structured um, the whole book to mirror itself, Um, there is a cycle that's gone Uh, throughout the book that begins to degenerate and it speaks to the degeneration of the nation. If you've not been um, in Judges uh, in a while, uh, back in chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, there is a cycle that is um, put forward so that one might understand what's going on in the book of Judges. Here is one uh, way to do it. I found about 37 of these. That's an exaggeration, but there's a lot of different words used for the cycle. Some of them have more steps than this. Um, but as you read at the end of Judges 2 and into Judges 3, this is the cycle that repeats itself in the six major judges in the book of Judges. This continues to happen, um, and God even uh, explains in the beginning uh, the, what's going on behind this. And so if you can, just want to back up in your uh, biblical history for a minute, Um, after the children of Israel escape from Egypt um, and wander in the wilderness due to their disobedience, God um, allows Moses to see the promised land but does not allow him to lead the people in. And so uh, the leadership mantle is passed to Joshua, uh, which happens to be the book before Judges. And Joshua leads the children of Israel across the Jordan River miraculously. And the children of Israel begin over uh, many years to conquer the land of Canaan the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the people of Israel are supposed to uh, use God's judgment on the the people of Canaan to defeat them, to destroy their idols, and to overtake their cities, and to settle into the land. The 12 tribes of Israel, uh, taken from the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel, uh, begin to take their parts of the land. And so uh, many of you have uh, have maps in the back of your Bibles, and there's a map back there, most likely, that talks about the 12 tribes of Israel and shows who got what land. After Joshua dies, the nation stays mostly faithful to the Lord through the lives of the elders that survived Joshua. But the beginning of the book of Judges tells us that after this, the people begin to forget the Lord. And so Yahweh sends to his people judgments in order to turn them back to himself. And that's important for us to see. That's important for us to understand because that's the same thing that happens in our lives. If you are a child of God, um, God is your daddy. He is your father, and he will lovingly discipline you. He will allow things into your life in order to bring you back to him, which is bad news in the short term, right? None of us like suffering, Um, None of us are are seeking it out, hopefully, and looking for it. But we do know from the Bible that God does not do this aimlessly. He's not a vindictive judge. He's not Zeus throwing lightning bolts down from Mount Olympus. He is a loving Father who allows things into our lives, who even brings things actively into our lives in order to push us back to Him. Uh, One commentator said that the book of Judges rather than talking about the conquest of the land, like the book of Joshua does, talks about the conquest of the people of Israel, the reconquest. It seems to be that though they were supposed to take the land of Canaan, that the land of Canaan, and specifically the gods of Canaan, are taking them. Uh, One scholar calls it the Canaanization of Israel. And this is what leads us in to Judges chapter 3. The first judge in the verses prior to what we read is Othniel. And we get to the second judge, Ehud. As you look at verse 12, I just want us to um, make our way through this difficult text. And it is difficult. One of my favorite commentators said, difficult texts should tempt you to preach them. I was tempted, and this is what we get today. By the way, if you're visiting, um, we just finished a year-long study of the book of Isaiah. And next week, we start the Gospel of Luke. So don't worry, we're just getting a little toe in the water of Judges... You can go back for yourself, but we're going to move on to the book of Luke. Um, Pastor Ron and the young adult group are out camping, and it's summer, and it's in between series, and so I got to choose. Okay? (laughs) Lucky you. Take a look in your Bibles at verse 12 of Judges chapter 3. And I want you to look at one word. And the people of Israel, what's the next word? Again. Again. What a tragic word. Let's pause and think about that. The people of Israel, again, and what follows is a refrain that we hear throughout the book of Judges, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They did it again. Can you identify with that? Ah, I did it again. Lord, again. Dad, again. Husband, wife, again. I did it again. This is... A refrain that we're used to. So this is not just um, some historical thing that happened 3,000 years ago. We can quickly and easily identify with the word again. You and I again do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. And watch what God's response is. God does not sit back. God does not throw up his hands. God is not surprised. But what God does in response to his children's rebellion is Check this out, strengthen a foreign king. God strengthens a foreign king. God raises up Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And then it's repeated twice in one verse because they had done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. The children of Israel were specially chosen by God, they were given his law, they were given his instruction. That's hard for us to understand. We tend to think law is bad, law is restrictive, law keeps me down. Um, We don't like that. Uh, But the Old Testament law um, was was a gift from God to help His people know how to live together as a community. Think about this: What were God's people doing in Egypt before they escaped? Setting up a new dynasty. They were slaves. Slaves don't make a lot of decisions for themselves and slaves certainly don't do generally a good job running a country because they can't. And when that happens for generations, um, you tend to not have a, a very good structure in place to set up a civilization on your own. Think about the kindness of God to, in the wilderness, keep his people from entering Canaan right away and give them laws to live by. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a a kind thing that God does? How good of God to reveal himself to his people, to give us laws and instruction for how we can live. And so it is this law, it is this instruction, this good law, this good instruction that the children of Israel transgress and they do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Eglon is the king of Moab and he's going to gather to himself some allies, some friends. And here's a map that maybe you can see. Um, this is a map of the uh, land of Canaan. Uh, it has some of the judges listed from where, where they're from. What we're interested in today is the land of Moab. So Eglon, king of Moab. Uh, generally Moab was in this region on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, uh, in between two major rivers, the Arnon and the Zered down here. Um, that was generally the historic homeland of the Moabites, oftentimes though, they inhabited the land north of the Arnon, which is why these are called the mountains of Moab, that is where the children of Israel kind of gathered uh, in the book of Deuteronomy before they cross over into the promised land, so that's Moab, that's Eglon, now Eglon gathers some uh, allies, and he gathers basically his brothers, the Ammonites, who lived uh, in the region of Gilead, in the wilderness, and in the mountains to the east, but north of Moab. The Ammonites and the Moabites came from Lot um, and his incestuous relationship with his daughters. Um, So the Moabites and the Ammonites are cousins. They're cousins to the Israelites. And you see this throughout Scripture. There are times when there is peace between them. There are times when there is war between them. And the last people mentioned are the Amalekites. And you won't see uh, Amalek. Mentioned up here, but Amalek was actually a grandson of Esau. So we have all kinds of weird cousins, once removed, second cousins, all uh, fighting each other. Um, and this is still going on in the Middle East, so this is not too surprising to see. Uh, but the Amalekites were more of a nomadic peoples that lived in the south, in the region down in here, and even down into the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, we see them in the scriptures as a specially uh, designated people that God told the Israelites to wipe out. This will come back to bite a lot of Israelites, including the first king of Israel, King Saul, who fails to obey God and wipe out the Amalekites. So these are the people that are raised up by God to punish and discipline his children. So they gather and they come and they defeat Israel. That means they had to gather on the eastern side of the Jordan to cross the Jordan into the main homeland of the Israelites, and there they defeated them. It says they took possession of the city of Palms, and they, they served Eglon king of Moab 18 years. The city of Palms throughout Scripture um, in a few places is referenced to Jericho. Um, it doesn't say Jericho anywhere in this, uh, but it seems to, to be that Jericho is the city of Palms. Um, you'll notice on the map here that Jericho is right north of the Dead Sea, uh, we were able to go there uh, a few weeks ago. Um, it is a habitable place in the region because there are springs there. Um, so it looks fairly desolate around, but there are springs right there in uh, in Jericho that are still functioning. They're still drawing their water from. And interestingly, there are still many, many date palms. So this is a modern picture um, near, uh, near Jericho. And you can even see um, they have some tall palms and some... Uh, Palms that are growing in over here and also some uh, bananas. Here is uh, a date palm tree and they're protecting the dates so they don't all spoil on the ground so they can collect them. Uh, and as we drove towards Jericho, we saw groves and groves and groves of palm trees, specifically date palms. So Deuteronomy 34.3 indicates that Jericho is known as the region or the city of palms. Uh, Second Chronicles 28.15 says, At Jericho, the city of palm trees. So this seems to be um, the location. It seems to make sense because... Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to show you this. This is also a picture from the mountains overlooking uh, modern Jericho. Here is ancient Jericho, Tel As-Sultan. The Jordan River is off in the distance, the Dead Sea you can see over here. And the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites would have had to cross the Jordan River somewhere in this region and come across in order to take Jericho. Um, this is pretty significant because for uh, many reasons, but one of the reasons is the easy access. They would have had to cross the river, and they would have had uh, not to go very far. They wouldn't have had to climb any mountains. Uh, the city of Jericho is on a plain, and so it was easy to access and easy to attack. The other thing is the symbolic nature of Jericho, right? All we have to do is go back a book in our Bibles... And one of the most famous Bible stories that many of us learn from earliest days, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Um, It was the first city that the children of Israel took. And it was a miraculous seizure of the city. Um, It's very important to note that this would have been symbolically shattering to the people of Israel to have lost, essentially, their first stronghold. They lost their first foothold. The place that symbolically... Um, showed their strength, their entry into the land, their beginning of their fulfilling the promises of God by taking the land has now been taken back from them. It seems to show that the children of Israel are losing their control. Now, again, it must be uh, emphasized, this is not an accident. God is not in heaven wringing his hands, pulling out his hair, oh no, my people, what's going to happen? We know from the scripture, that God strengthened Eglon to do this. God enabled Eglon to bring the people in. Yahweh raised him up. And this is a good time for us to pause and consider what that means as we think about world affairs. God is not surprised when um, a suicide bomber blows himself up somewhere. God is not taken uh, aback uh, when wars break out. God is in control. Folks, Kim Jong-un is not in control. Vladimir Putin is not in control. Bakr al-Baghdadi is not in control. God is. Donald Trump is not in control. God is. God raises up leaders in his timing, and he puts down leaders in his timing. We know that because we just studied the book of Isaiah, in which God raises up Cyrus, in which God raises up Nebuchadnezzar, in order to discipline the children of Israel. This is a theme throughout Scripture that God will do what it takes, including some very difficult things to understand to get His people to pay attention. And so the people of Israel, in verse 14, are serving Moab for, for 18 years. And in this time, of course, that they cry out to Yahweh, verse 15, they begin to cry out, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer. So think about this. Yahweh raises up a king to invade Israel, and now Yahweh raises up a deliverer to push back against the king, who he raised up to take Israel. Um, this, this is a, a, a fantastic picture of the sovereignty of God as God oversees and superintends human history. And so we're introduced to the deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Now if you have the NIV, I believe you have a, a more helpful word there. They just say Benjamite. I have no idea why we have to say Benjaminite. It just makes things much more uh, difficult. So if I go back and forth between the two, please understand that's why. This Benjaminite, though, is, is not, um, it's not, a, it's not a, an incidental detail that's thrown in there. As If you've read the book of Joshua and you're following the story of the Bible, you begin to understand the significance of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin is in between the two strongest tribes, Ephraim in the north, which is Joseph's um, son. And then Judah in the south. Benjamin, lucky him, gets a strip of land in the middle, which happens to include a city called Jerusalem. But Benjamin is also um, the younger brother of Joseph, the beloved youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob. When Jacob named Benjamin, his beloved wife Rachel was dying. He named him Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. Son of the right hand. The very next thing in the Bible that we know about Ehud is he's left-handed. He's from the tribe of the, right, of the righties, and he's a lefty. What's even more ironic, and I think humorous, is that at two other places in the Old Testament, we find out that for some reason, it's in the genes of the Benjaminites, the righties, that they have a lot of lefties. <laughs> There are a lot of left-handers. We see that some of these men defect to David in the days of King Saul, and they can use their left hands with slings, and they're very accurate with them. Uh, It also comes up in uh, Chronicles that there are ambidextrous slingers, and they're from the tribe of Benjamin. So there's debate uh, over what the left-handedness means. In many cultures, as you may know, left-handedness has been seen as a curse. It's been seen as a bad thing um, because it's not common, right? Right? Um, we, just, we did a little survey at the beginning here, and most of us are right-handed. Um, I think that's very interesting because the Hebrew for left-handed means that it's hindered or restricted in the right hand. There's debate about whether that means he has some kind of disability with his right hand, and so he, he has to use his left hand. Um, it may just mean that he's left-handed, but whatever the case, it's included because it's unusual. It's included as a detail because it does make a difference in our understanding of the story. Now this is an interesting uh, piece of story, of narrative, that we know something that not all the characters in the story know. We've been introduced to something, and you know this if you've read novels. Oftentimes the author will let the reader in on something, but the reader understands the characters in the book don't know this. Which creates this kind of like, whoa, what's going to happen? What, what, what's, this, what's this person going to do? Oh, this person doesn't know that. It'd be, it, it creates tension. It creates expectation. So when we find out that Ehud is a Benjaminite, he's left-handed. This is very interesting. And he becomes the man who takes a tribute back and forth from the children of Israel to Eglon. It seems that Eglon has taken up residence in the palace in, Jer- in Jericho. Maybe he likes the west side of the Jordan better. Maybe it's his summer palace. Maybe he goes down to the Dead Sea and gets a spa treatment. Um, whatever the case is, he seems to be in Jericho ruling and reigning from there. And so Ehud brings the tribute. Uh, the tribute uh, maybe be uh, given to Ehud. Maybe he's a left, lefty and maybe he's not a threat. And so maybe this is like, oh, you can, you're left-handed. You can go take the tribute. Um, it doesn't seem to be um, a great job to be uh, taxed, uh, uh, given. But he also has a a party with him that brings the tribute. We don't know what it is. Maybe it's wheat. Um, Maybe it's dates. Uh, Maybe it's grapes. Maybe it's wine. Um, Whatever the case, there are people with him that bring the tribute. Now, we find out the next thing. We know know that Ehud is a Benjaminite. He's left-handed. And in verse 16, we find out that he's made for himself a... A sword. And not just any sword. Again, the details are not incidental here. They're, they're, they're very important for the story. He's made a double-edged sword. Uh, so it's not a sword like a saber or something with uh, one side sharpened so that you can hack. Okay? It's a it's a double-bladed sword so that you can thrust. All right? Um, so that there are, so it is sharp on both sides. Why are we told this? <laughs> well... Because it's going to become important as we begin to tell as we're reading it. This is not introduced into the story not to be used, right? It's like, man, he had this really cool sword! And it never shows up in the rest of the story. (laughs) He has a really cool sword, and now we're supposed to go, what's he going to do with it? What is he going to do with this sword? Well, it's a. it seems to be a shorter sword, maybe more of a dagger length, maybe 14 inches, 16 inches, maybe even short as a foot. And because he's, ah, left-handed, he puts it on his right thigh. Um, there's debate over whether or not it would have gone on the inside of his thigh or the outside of his thigh, but it would—it went under his clothes, of course. And it seems to be that this is a stealthy move because most people were right-handed, and therefore they would draw their sword from the left leg. So he has a concealed—he has a concealed carry license. Just kidding. He—he ha- he has this uh, this dagger, this short sword strapped to his right thigh. It's under his clothes. And verse 17, and we revisit, oh, he's bringing the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And then here's another detail. Coincidentally, Eglon was a very fat man. Oh, okay. That's a fun fun detail. Uh, Perhaps it's mocking the Moabites, um, but it is a very important detail as we're about to find out. Eglon, by the way, has a name that means calf or calf-like, or Um, calf-man. I learned something new in Israel this time, uh, many things new in Israel, but this time uh, was that even today in Israel, but back, especially in ancient times, um, children were named for the animals. They may have been nicknamed after one of the pets. um, And it was very common to have a name that equaled uh, an animal. Um, So Caleb uh, means uh, dog, okay? Okay? Uh, their, eglon means calf, okay? A, a young cow. This is not uncommon. But it seems very interesting that the king of the Moabites is named calf, and he's fat. Perhaps he's the fattened calf. <laughs> okay? Here is this very interesting detail about eglon. Now, we zoom in to a particular time. It seems that Ehud had presented the tribute before, and this was another trip, maybe the monthly trip. Maybe he's paying rent, okay? And he's visiting Eglon to give the tribute. Now, we'll go to verse 18, and watch what happens. We come into it after he's presented the tribute. Um, He sends away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. Gilgal, best as we can tell, um, is just a few miles from Jericho, uh, within walking distance, with, in an afternoon or a morning stroll. You can see it here on the map. This is a guess, but based on the, the evidence, it seems very likely that this is where Gilgal is. Gilgal is also the staging ground after the Israelites in the book of Joshua take Jericho. Gilgal becomes their base camp in which they send... Uh, Armies into the rest of Israel. Um, They set up the stones there that they, after they crossed the Jordan River to commemorate God parting the Jordan River. It becomes a a very important site, but it seems that perhaps now it has become a cultic site, Um, perhaps worship to other idols, because who turns back at the idols near Gilgal. Some of your versions may say a variety of other things. There's a little bit of difficulty with the Hebrew. But it seems that the best understanding is that these are standing stones that either were for a good purpose but were turned for idolatry or are new stones placed in this significant historical site to become a site of worship. Um, whatever the case, God is very explicit in Deuteronomy that they were to crush the standing stones and not use those in their worship. So, Ehud goes by this sacred site, and as he gets to the sacred site, he turns around. He sends everybody else away, and he comes back to Eglon. It seems that he is recognizable at the court in Jericho, and so he is allowed entrance because he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, this is very interesting, that he just went by a cultic site uh, where there's idols, and he turns around. We're not told this. This is conjecture. I'm standing away from my Bible. Okay? This is conjecture. But perhaps it is understood that, ah, Ehud was walking by Gilgal when he got a word from the gods. Okay? He was near a, a site of worship, and now he's turned around because he has a secret message. Eglon is very interested in hearing this secret message, and we see his arrogance. Um, he's named Calf, he's fat, and he seems very arrogant. Um, yes, let me send that guy in here. I'll... I'll I'll listen to him. Whatever, he doesn't. He doesn't uh, feel there's any kind of threat, and so Ehud is given uh, a private audience with the king. And it seems that it may have been like today's temperatures, which very well could be in Jericho. It's a hot place. That uh, Ehud, uh, Eglon was upstairs, where, where there was access to wind, uh, where there was um, a way to keep cool in the shade. Um, And this is where he and Ehud are left alone. Ehud approaches the king and he says, again, I have a message from God for you. And it's interesting that he uses the word Elohim in Hebrew, which is a generic term. Um, The peoples would have used this term for their gods as well. Um, He does not use the covenant name Yahweh. He says, Elohim has, I have a message from Elohim for you. It seems that Eglon stands up from his seat to receive this message. He's excited to see, receive a message from the gods. The gods are speaking to him. Maybe he's going to conquer more land. He stands up, and watch how the biblical author describes it. Verse 21. Look how, look, how, look how detailed it is. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. All the author needed to say was, Ehud killed the king. And yet he details this uh, in in almost a blow-by-blow sort of way. The sword that he had fashioned that was kept in a hidden place because this unique man's left-handedness leads to the killing of the king who has been oppressing the children of Israel. But what else do we know about Eglon? Well, he's a fat man. And so verse 22 gives us even more details that the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. Uh, his girth basically swallowed the, the, the dagger. Okay, He may not have even had um, the, the cross blade right here and so the whole thing just went in. Now some of you have a version that says the, the, the sword went out his back. Others of you say the dung came out. There's a little bit of miss. There's, there's debate over what exactly the Hebrew means, but I, I think that the fact that it references the dung is important for what comes next. Um, he severed one of his intestines or his colon or something, right, in, 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 sever, in uh, stabbing him, and the dung seems to come out. Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. I read this this week and I was like, like a... Like a like one of those crossbars that just like falls down, you know, like in a in like a, a movie of like Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or something, but it, it, I didn't think that they had this technology. Silly me, you know, those ancient people who didn't know what they were doing. Um, they had keys um, that worked very much like our keys did. Uh, they were keyed specifically to a lock, and they would um, be pressed into the keyhole and would uh, unlock the door. Um, so Ehud exits quickly because Eglon has dismissed his his, uh, courtiers or whatever, and Ehud locks the door and sneaks out around the back. Somehow, um, Ehud, who probably is familiar with the palace now that he's been delivering the tribute, knows how to get away. He's planned this, and so he locks the door. Now, this is hilarious. Um, This next part of the story, just imagine this. Um, The servants came, and they find the door locked, and they're wondering, well, what happened? I mean, did they... They're not talking anymore. What's going on in there? What's happening? But apparently, um, in the king's upper chamber, he also had uh, a commode. He had some sort of form of a toilet um, to use. And as they get close to the door, oh my. Well, we know what the king's doing. Let's give him his privacy. We'll, We'll wait. And it says that they wait until the point of being embarrassed because they think he is going to the bathroom. But they wait a long time, and finally he's not coming out. And so when he they, when they couldn't get in, they took the key, they opened the door, which you probably don't do on the king, right? Like you don't open the king's locked door any old time. And they, they finally get up the courage to do it, and what do they find when they open the door is Eglon, the slaughtered calf, on the ground, dead. They did not expect that. Nobody expected that, because this man was just an Israelite. More than that, he was just a Benjaminite. More than that, he was just a lefty. This is completely unexpected. God delivers the children of Israel by a very unexpected way. So Ehud escapes, verse 26. Uh, the, while they're waiting, he gets time to run away. It says he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. so he takes the same route. When he gets back to um, the hill country of Ephraim, which is right on the border of Benjamin, where he's from, he grabs a ram's horn, okay, a shofar, It's called a trumpet here. And he blows the trumpet to to rally the troops, right? I hear this sound echoing through the hills and the canyons. And they gather to Ehud. He gathers an army. They go down with Ehud as their leader. And verse 28, he says these significant words. Follow after me, for Yahweh has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. Um, this is a zoomed-in map. This is what would have uh, probably happened, is that um, this probably would have taken a day or two. Um, so again, when we're reading the Bible, sometimes it seems that things are happening again and again, but they don't have cars, there's not a train system. Okay, They may have a chariot, probably not. They may have a horse, probably not. It's on foot. And so Ehud makes his way back to the border of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Ephraim. He gathers um, the warriors and they get back in time to go to the fords of Moab. Okay, not ford trucks. Okay, a ford is where you cross a river. It's a shallow part where it's easier to get across the river. They secure that so that the only way across the river is in more dangerous places. That means that the soldiers of Moab and probably the Ammonites and the Amalekites can't get back over the river very easily. Maybe they didn't go to swimming lessons. Maybe they had heavy armor on and would have drowned going across the Jordan. Whatever the case is, they cut off their escape route and defeat the Moabites. And they don't just defeat the Moabites, but what do we know about the Moabites in verse 29? Is this just any old army? No, this is a highly skilled army. So again, God is using an unexpected way to rescue his people over overwhelming odds. These are all strong, able-bodied men, and yet not a man escaped. Woo! What do we do with this? I mean, it's fun. What do we go? That was fun. <laughs> hey, yay. Fun stories in the Bible. What, what are we to do with this? Notice how God is at work, even in the mess. Notice how God is at work, even in the dark times even in the times where his people have turned their back on him. Notice how God th- works through a, a series of seeming coincidences to bring about deliverance for his people. And, and the, the, the thought here is, can God work in and through your messes? Because you have messes, don't you? You're messy. I'm messy. And I don't just mean disorganized. <laughs> we, we're in messes. We're in messy families. We're in messy businesses. We are messy people because of our sin. But you know what? Sometimes we can get actually uh, arrogant about this. Right? My mess is too big for God. Which, if you think about it, is a ridiculous thing to say. But we do, we do that all the time, right? This mess, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this mess. As if God can't cut through the mess. We see in this mess in Judges chapter 3. In fact, we see in the mess of the book of Judges, God still working In getting through to his people. You know what the next book in the Bible is after Judges? It's Ruth. You know what Ruth proves? The time of the Judges is a dark time. But it's not all darkness. Ruth is one of the greatest love stories of all time. It's this glimmer of hope and light. In a time of darkness. When the Judges ruled. Don't tell me God has given up. He's not done with you. So hang on Persevere, keep fighting, lift up your eyes and say with the prophet Micah, as for me, I will look to Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. Be warned also in this story. Be warned about the turning away from God. We see the children of Israel do what's evil in God's sight and there are consequences. There are consequences to turning away from God from God. He brings another people in to take the Israelites out, to rule over them, to suppress them, in order, watch this, in order to bring them back to himself. Now let's not overdo this. Let's not read into every situation in our life and apply a prescription, exact prescription from the scriptures, but let's know that whatever happens in our life, that God is capable, we're saying it today, God is able to work in and through the mess. And then lastly, be encouraged by God's grace. There's grace all over this story. It's everywhere. Those who are delivered are completely undeserving. They're rebellious people. They're ungrateful. They're spiritual adulterers. The fact that God would act at all is totally and completely sovereign grace. That's the only reason these people are rescued. So be encouraged by God's grace displayed in these stories. And when we read these stories, let's, let's slow down a little bit. And, and reflect. Reflect on what's going on in this story. Is it just about a guy stabbing a big fat man? Well, It's in the Bible, so probably not. <laughs> but it does take some work to unearth this. To sit and think, to notice, to look at the details, to soak it in. Many of you have study Bibles that will help you with this. Now, think about it first, and then go to the study notes. But, but I, I mean, I got these maps from a study Bible to help us understand what's going on in the story. And last, as we're thinking about judges, as we're thinking about leaders and deliverers, think about the judge, Jesus Christ. At his first coming, this servant had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was unexpected. He was under the radar. One of his future disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was not expected, but he's coming again. When he does, he, it will be unexpected to us, but it will not be subtle or quiet or under the radar this time. This time, Jesus will rip open the sky and ride with heaven's armies to destroy his enemies and ours, just like Ehud pictures in this story. Jesus is going to rescue us, deliver us from our enemies, and then he'll sit on the throne, and then he'll judge the living and the dead because he is king of kings and lord of lords. I wonder if on that day, I wonder if on that day if you will shout in victory and hope or will you run in fear as some in the Bible do and beg the mountains to fall on them? Do you know what you will do? Are you maybe hoping your good works will outweigh your bad? I wouldn't bet on it. I'm not a gambling man but that's not a bet I would make. I know my own heart. My my good works and my bad works... Stacked up on the scale, it's, it's not going to be even close. But you know what? You can know. You can have assurance of how you'll respond on that day. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He died on a cross in my place and in yours so that we would never have to bear the punishment of sin. Jesus bore it for us. He has paid the debt to God, so we are debt-free. Romans 5 says that we have peace with God because of this justification. It sounds really good. Forgiveness, peace, hope, and it can be yours if you will turn away from your sin. Recognize your sin and trust in Jesus. He died on the cross, but he didn't stay there. Um, We went to Jerusalem a few weeks ago We didn't find Jesus' body. It's not there. But you know what? We did stand on the Mount of Olives where Jesus will bodily return to this earth, where he will come back for his own. Death couldn't hold him, and because of that, he offers new life for you and me. We can be assured of life after the grave. We don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of the grave. We can look forward to life eternal with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we say with the hymn writer, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to Jesus' cross we cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And we recognize your goodness and your kindness to us in giving us Jesus who came to save us from our sins. He is the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, the one who reflects a later king in Israel's history, David, who set up a kingdom here on earth for a limited amount of time. But one day we know that your son Jesus will set up a kingdom that will never end, that will go on forever and ever. We look forward to that day, and Lord, we pray that those in this room who have not received the gospel would hear it today. They would believe that Jesus died on the cross in their place for their sin. That he took all of God's wrath on himself so that there's none left over for those who believe in him. Lord, we believe also that you raised Jesus from the dead. That he lives. That he has a new resurrection body that is promised to us someday. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we go this week. Help us to think about how your word applies to our lives. For we know that it is profitable. We know that it is written down for us to learn from so that we might not repeat the same sins of the children of Israel. And Lord, when we do, we know that we have an advocate who loves us and gave himself for us. God, go with us today. Help us to be uh, renewed and encouraged in our reading of the scriptures that we might dig in deep and find treasures in it. Thank you, Lord for the way that you have brought us together today. Help us now to go to our classes and to learn even more. We pray for our kids who are being taught right now, that they would understand your word and that they would believe as well. In Jesus' name, amen.